Hello, strong, feisty women. Some of you may recognize my voice. I'm Celine Yeager, host of the Hit Play Not Pause podcast. Throughout my career as a professional health and fitness writer and now a podcaster, I hear countless questions from women who are trying to understand how their ever-changing hormones impact their sports performance. So we decided to serve up some answers in a brand new series called Hormonal that we will be releasing on the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast feed. Throughout this four-part series, reproductive endocrinologist Dr. Carla DiGirolamo and I will be tackling topics like periods, the pill, pregnancy, and conditions like PCOS, all from the perspective of sports performance. If you aren't already, follow the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast and stay tuned for our first episode releasing on April 15th. Also, have questions you want answered? Send us a voice note at speakpipe.com slash hormonal and we'll get it answered on the show. You are listening to the Girls Gone Gravel podcast, a podcast for women who are chasing epic and everyday adventures on their bikes. We are a production of Live Feisty Media and hosted by Christy Moan and Katherine Taylor. Well, hi, Christy. How are you? I'm fabulous. How are you, Catherine? Are you for real fabulous? I, yes, I'm fabulous. I'm just going to stick with that. Fake it till you make it. No. <laughs> so, so we yeah. usually record this intro on Thursday and it's Monday mm-hmm. and the show mm-hmm. comes out tomorrow. Uh, yeah. And there's been a lot going on in your world. So we haven't been able there's, to connect. There's been a little bit of uh, busyness. <laughs> chaoticness um yeah so uh kind of tell us a little bit about what's unfolded in the last nine days out in kansas i'm not even gonna well, say the name of the event anymore you know jim jim cummins um our co-founder of dk um and lifetime they've uh, there was a mutual separation of ways um, so Jim Cummins is no longer with the DK organization. Um, that in and of itself has sparked quite a bit of um, controversy on which, which what is what's interesting, like from just so many angles um, <clears throat> and has become obviously quite a lightning rod and hot topic in the cycling industry. Um, and Emporia has been thrust kind of into the absolute middle of that. I think chaos is probably really the best word. Just the the craziness and the and the um, I don't even yeah those those words are hard to come by. But just like how how intense um, it's been um, on social media surrounding DK. Yeah. So. 
So if anybody doesn't know, so Dirty Kansas has, there was a petition earlier this year, mm-hmm. changed the name because mm-hmm. Kansas is a name for the Kaw Nation. And mm-hmm. if you just look at it, Dirty Kansas would be like Dirty Indian. Yeah. However, there's another camp that's like Dirty is actually like gritty. It's like a good thing in this context. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of been the tension there of, yeah. Some people feel like the name is actually honoring the land and the people, and some people feel like it's like a yeah. It's and it's it's in this whole process. I think you know. I think there's a few things that to me are important. Just side notes. I mean, I I, I really think you know when you're looking back at at history um, and even recent history, the the permission was granted by the CA tribal council to let us continue using the name Dirty Kanza. Um, what has become clear, and, and this has been even an internal argument within our own team, um, as to whether or not just because we had the rights to use it, it was the correct thing to continue to do. Um, I think after this last round, um, and after many conversations with Jim, who is you know a personal friend of mine, um, there, there became an, a, a moment where even I think he recognized that just there was no reason to continue using something that was hurting people um, and really looking at the full picture and, and trying to step back and look, look at it from other people's point of views. Um, it's a hard thing to do, but it was also the right thing to do. And I do think the unfortunate situation is that Jim had gotten to that space and um, things were in motion. Um, in regards to a name change. Um, I don't want to sit here and blame stuff on COVID, but the reality is, is there's that, that whole piece of what's happening in our time right now where, you know, we've got reduced staff and, and, and it's, I'm not making excuses. It's just about the timeline. Um, yeah. I don't but, think people yeah. realize like lifetime has had, has furloughed the majority of their staff. And yeah. And, and now has actually laid off quite a few people. Yeah. So that's not an excuse. It's just a reality. Like the timing of it was, it was in works. It's just, um, things there are was just, when you don't have stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Including Jim who was had been, who had been furloughed and myself. So, um, it's just, it's hindsight. So I don't, I don't really, somebody I've had many conversations with many people. And, and one of the things that really flipped the switch for me last week was that, I started really focusing on things that would take the opportunity that this situation has provided um, and look at things that were only going to make our start lines across the event industry more diverse and more inclusive. And if the action that I was doing wasn't working towards that, that I wasn't going to spend any time on it. And that maybe sounds kind of like a cop out for not dealing with some of the crap that's back there in the, in the past, but it is so intense right now that, that that is the best way. That was the best way for me to move forward last week, literally Monday morning last week, when I woke up, I woke up with tears streaming down my face. And that's when I stopped. Sorry. Okay. This is hard. Well, I mean, it isn't, it isn't. It's hard because, um, 
there is that baggage, but it's not hard in the fact that like, this is the right thing to do. And, and this is an amazing opportunity. But back to the point was that I stopped looking at social last week on Monday um, because it was not serving me any purpose. Um, and it was not letting me, it was not letting me um, take this opportunity that was, that was sitting in front of me and the rest of the DK team. And I really wanted to be in that space of using the amazingness that is DK to make something better. Um, and not, I mean, I really believe that cycling is so powerful that it can actually, you know, shape the world on some levels. And so that's how I really started taking that challenge on and getting through the end of the week last week or the bulk of the week last week was to look at the opportunities and the positive parts. And, um, and that includes the positive parts that Jim has obviously brought to the table um, and really trying not to focus on the negative, but now these new opportunities that are, that are laid out before us. And there's been a lot of amazing people that have reached out that want, that want to see us be successful and that are going to contribute to that. So um, ultimately from the course of action last week, we've committed to um, changing the name and that will happen in the next uh, 12 weeks. Obviously we're hoping for sooner, but we've got to be realistic that all of this stuff takes, it takes time because of the importance of getting it right. Um, and I, I need people to understand that that's been hard because it's been like, I think one of the criticisms that's been the hardest to take is people are like, well, just change it. I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, but it's not, it's not that easy. Um, there's a lot of care and consideration that I want to go, that I want put into this next name because when DK started, um, it was, it was one thing, but it's grown to be something even bigger. And there's a huge responsibility on us to make sure we get it right. And I think one of the things I most, I'm most excited about is that Lifetime had already committed to a DEI coalition internally looking at the organization and, and looking at their employees and all of those sorts of things. But, but from this, they've now committed to a DEI coalition for the event industry. Most specifically, I think they're obviously interested in the off-road largely, but they, but they want to be a leader um, and they've seen the opportunity and, you know, that's going to come through this, through the DK channels. Um, so we're, we're going to have that coalition put together, um, soon like i'm hoping by the end of this week but you know let's be honest again it's like we got to contact people and and form this coalition and that that's going to be fully transparent and then the third piece really is that that transparent piece so i encourage people to send me an email um reach out to me however you need to get a hold of me if if you have questions on what we're doing and then hopefully we can even use our girls gone gravel podcast a little bit for some updates on on a regular basis on what Lifetime and the DK team are doing to push, to hold ourselves accountable and push these three things forward. So, and uh, God, Catherine, thank you for being patient with me as well. I was like, I've lost my podcast co-host. It's fine. We'll figure it out. <laughs> she went, she went AWOL. It there were moments nice. last week, believe me, that I was like, what the hell? I'm out. Like, see you guys. <laughs> I knew, I knew, I knew it was all going down. Um, I just, I want people to know um, about you, Christy, as we have even had some 
hard conversations with people, including not, it wasn't a hard conversation. It was a great conversation in the, the interview we have today. But when, when Christy Moan sees people that are excluded or feel like they don't have a place, she, as soon as we get off the call and the recording stops, she's figuring out ways to bring people into the fold. And I think the problem with a lot of what's going on in social media right now, and I muted a lot of it too, because it's just so angry and mean. And I think what we're doing is we're assuming the best in ourselves and assuming the worst in each other. And Gosh. if you just would, if, I think if all of us would start reaching out with a conversation, which from what I understand from you is like, it's some of the conversations that have been shaping things, not like yeah. really angry, mean social media posts. And I get that people are angry and frustrated. I get it. We're not yeah. we're like living in a, a really tense time bomb right now. Um, I just don't think those things are helping. Like I've never seen them help anything. No. And it's been, I mean, that I think here internally from our DK team, obviously Jim Cummins was um, the face and the figurehead. We had felt like we had done a, a decent job of making sure people aware, were aware that there were more than just Jim. Um, and it became apparent after that, that that's not quite how the public had seen it. Um, and internally, like Leland and Triva, our athlete service manager, and myself, like we're, we're here and we're working and we're listening and we're excited. And I guess, like, just like you said, I need, I need people to decide that they can, they can trust what we're going to do and they can have a little bit of faith in us. We've proven it over the last many years that that we can we can do this and if if we don't do it then start slinging your harsh words my direction but um at least give us the space and time to try to really make some changes and we like in full transparency we're going to make mistakes like there's no way that we don't move this huge thing forward without making some mistakes but um but i'm a phone call away i'm an email away and um I take that part of my job incredibly seriously. Um, and I do my, you know, we've talked about the 200 women, 200 miles campaign, and I've wanted that to go further. Um, because when I did that, like, that's what I really saw was that there is community that's missing out on this. And, and I want that start line open. I want everybody to feel welcome. Um, and that part, when I focus on that, I'm stoked. I'm more stoked about DK now than I have been in probably three or four years since we launched the 200 women, 200 miles campaign, because I see a new opportunity for even more. And that, God, that makes me, that makes me super stoked. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think oh, for a lot of the people that probably listen to this too, it translates to what can you do in your local community? Yeah. You help get more women on bikes and, and more of all kinds of women on bikes, not just mm -hmm. the women that like to ride at your speed. Like we were doing before COVID and before they kind of closed the trail, but there was a, um, a trail that was a flat gravel trail that uh, started conveniently at a brewery and it was about four miles and we would do just a 45 minute beginner gravel ride once a month. And that was like, you know, it was really fun because then we'd have beers afterwards. 
but it was something that I had learned from another group. Just like, if you really want to get new people in, make the barrier really, really low. Yeah. (laughs) You know? And so I think like thinking about in your community, what is something that you can do? Um, whether it's reaching out to a a different group or, um, you know, finding something that's going to be really, really beginner friendly, um, to help bring more people into the sport, more, uh, women, more people of color, um, you know, whoever that is, because like driving out for a 50 mile gravel ride, a lot of people aren't going to do that for their first time out. (laughs) It's true. And I'm, I'm guilty of struggling with that true beginner piece. You can ask my daughter. (laughs) So it's not, I mean, that she's a good, she's a good rubric for me because um, I think you're right. Like it's important to just lower the barrier as, as much as you can and um, give everybody that space to join. So I'm, yeah, like I said, I think between this show and between DK, um, I'm hoping the reach is, is wide and, and we cast a big net and we bring just more people into our cycling community. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, we have a really fun and different guest. So good. (laughs) So, uh, we had a conversation. This is another triathlete, but also actually got their start in, um, riding and gravel cycling. Um, mm-hmm. and somebody that I had met at the outspoken women in triathlon summit, uh, when they were talking about diversity in, and inclusion in the context of, um, transgender and, um, athletes. So, uh, um, this is Rach McBride and Rach is a professional triathlete. Uh, Rach identifies with the pronouns they and them and really gives uh, their story of, you know, not having a female body, but not identifying as male or female. And Mm -hmm. really, they were really great and a really great conversation. I think for both of us to have to understand what it feels like to show up at the start line and feel like I don't fit here. (laughs) Well, and for a, a conversation that I was a tad bit intimidated by, Rach did an amazing job of not being intimidating. Yes. Yes. They were. I was also a little bit intimidated. Um, the audio may be a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> we, we had some issues. <laughs> we jokingly said that Rach was in the closet at one point. <laughs> they were trying well, to she was. <laughs> they were. Yes. Um, oh, they were. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, they were trying to find the internet. And so then at one point, Rach ended up down in a wine cellar and then their nephew, Daniel showed up. It was just a really funny, like traveling. I said, sorry, Taylor, this is a lot to edit, but it was like when the conversation got to the really important part was when it started messing up. So but I think everyone will really enjoy this conversation with Rach. Rach is going to show up at the race in Kansas. That's going to have a new name. Yay. And kick ass one day soon. Yeah. I look forward to it. We will be excited about that, but, um, we will go on with our interview with Rach McBride. Welcome to this week's episode of the Girls Gone Gravel podcast. 
We are excited. I'm excited to have somebody that I have been following for a while and like literally have followed around at an event to get to know um, because I uh, find them to be such a badass. So we have with us a professional triathlete slash gravel cyclist, Rach McBride today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and have a chat. Yeah. So uh, I know that you are primarily a professional triathlete, right? So why don't you give us a little bit more of your background, kind of, and you also have like a really fascinating other piece, other piece of your career. So tell us kind of all the things about you, and then I want to get into some of the gravel you've been doing. Sure. Yeah. So um, yeah, I've been a full-time athlete for um, now ten years, which I can't believe. Living the dream. Um, and I, um, have had what I consider some great success in my career. I'm a three-time Ironman 70.3 champion, two-time, uh, ITU long distance world champion, bronze medalist. Um, I've got some Ironman bike course records and, uh, and have a couple Ironman podiums and have competed, have qualified for Kona twice. Um, competed once. Hopefully, we'll be competing in the next version of of Kona whenever that's going to happen. Um, and uh, and have also been racing gravel since um, I think I did my first gravel race in 2012. Uh, and I also have two master's degrees in genetics, uh, and I'm currently working casually, um, sort of as a side gig for uh, options for sexual health here in BC in Canada, which is basically similar to Planned Parenthood um, in the rest of North America, doing sexual health education and advocacy. We get underachievers on the podcast, Christy. Yeah, I was just, like, when, when, when do you train? <laughs> <laughs> That's insane. Um, the uh i'm really super interested like you said you how long have you been doing iron man then um iron man i did my first iron man in 2016 november 2016 so you actually so did I, before that uh yeah 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 so at that while i while i started um in 20 uh when 2011 i turned pro and was doing 70.3 distance. Um, 2012 did my first gravel race and I've sort of used gravel racing as like a fun, fun thing outside of triathlon. Uh, and has definitely become a larger and larger part of my life, uh, in the past seven years and have now, um, and then in 2016 did my first Ironman. And so now I'm mostly focused on full, like long distance racing versus the half iron distance. Um, and, and definitely hitting gravel majors is in my future. That's for sure. Wow. So do you, you said you had some Ironman bike course records. Do you think gravels helped with that? Um, well, I think that I, um, I learned that I was a good cyclist when I got injured from running in triathlon early in my early when I started doing triathlon. So around 2007, 2008, I started, I did some bike racing and did pretty well in some um, local, like larger bike races and 
than when I moved to <clears throat> gravel distance. I think that what happened for me is like the first gravel race that I did was, um, it was the Oregon gravel epic down in the gosh, Wal I think it's Waldport, Oregon. And they, um, it was like a five hour race and it was one of the hardest things I've, I'd ever done in my life. And I think that going through that experience of like recognizing how hard I could push myself on the bike on my own, because of course in these smaller races and then gravel racing, you're often on your own mm -hmm. out in the middle of the wilderness with no little support except for your own brain power. And, uh, and it really gave me the sense of like how, really how hard I could push and that it gave me a lot of confidence because I've, um, aside, except for one race, I've run one, every single gravel race I've entered. Um, and so wow. it, it's really given me that, that confidence in, okay, maybe I'm, maybe I'm pretty, pretty tough on the bike. Um, I think that Rach definitely needs to come to Dirty Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, man. A any race I'm entering, I'm going for the win. <laughs> I'm I love not used it. To anything else? So yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, what is you said it was the hardest thing you'd ever done? Like, what's the gravel like in BC? Um, in BC, it's kind of um, it's it's mostly forest service roads. Okay. Um, it's not a lot of flat. Um, a lot, one of the local rides that I do is up, um, Cypress mountain, which is a mountain that there's a road climb, a 12 or 11 K road climb. Uh, but you can take the gravel route and I have yet to be able to actually make it all the way up to the top without walking several times. So, um, it's pretty steep and, uh, and like <clears throat> mildly technical, I know there are lots of folks in BC who actually take their gravel bikes on some of our hardcore mountain bike trails. I'm not one of those people that is like very good on the super technical stuff, but um, it's definitely uh, quite, yeah, quite hilly, I would say, is the, in general. Is BC where you're from? I know you're Canadian, correct? Originally is, but and you live in Canada right now. But um, is that where you're from, or are you uh, like where did you start no. riding gravel? I actually, well, I actually grew up in the U.S. and then finished high school in Germany. So I, um, but my parents are Canadian. So okay. um, I was in Ontario for about ten years, doing a couple of degrees, and then I moved out to Vancouver when I decided I was before I'd even done triathlon, but I decided I was going to be an elite triathlete. Um, yeah, 13 years ago or 14 years ago, I moved out to, to BC. Um, and so I actually wasn't an athlete until I lived in BC, really. Um, this is where I've done all of my gravel riding and training and becoming a high performance athlete. How did you know that you were like you had that high performance athlete in you if you didn't you weren't really an athlete until like this is after grad school, right? Uh, it was in the middle of grad school um, in Ottawa. I started running a little bit and I had given myself a goal. I was like really unhappy with my life and really unhappy living in Ottawa and didn't like the super cold winters. It was like minus 40 Celsius in the winters and just like horribly cold. Um, and I 
decided that I was going to get in shape and I was going to run a marathon because uh, that sounded epic. And, um, and, minus, and I, when it was I, minus 40 outside. Yeah, I know. I, like, I've been back to Ottawa and run in the winter there. And I'm like, I have no idea how I did this at the time. Um, but uh, yeah, in January, I started running in September. Um, that would have been 2004. In September, I ran my first marathon and I qualified for Boston. And which I was like, well, I guess I have a little bit of talent in running. So um, then I ran Boston and had a terrible race because I was way overtrained and didn't know what I was doing. And uh, but one of my running mentors at the time um, knew that I had like I swam competitively until I was about 11 years old. And she had seen me. Um, I had joined her for some uh, like group rides that she did on this old steel Fiori road bike um, and she noticed that I had a little bit of talent on the bike and I think just from my like commitment to training and my self-motivation she just she put this idea in, in my head I recall her saying like Rach I think you could be an elite triathlete and for some reason I just grabbed onto that and took it and ran with it literally and just put everything into it. And when I did my first triathlon, I'll never forget the feeling I had. I was like grinning as I was mm. heading out bike. Um, and, and I ended up finishing that race second place overall. It was like a little sprint distance race. Um, but I was second place and I'm a super competitive person and that like immediate success um, really motivated me to continue on. And <clears throat> within 18 months, after that, I was amateur world champion, um, and then the next year was uh, was fifth at elite nationals, and so wow. I kind of had this like like skyrocket of a career um, to start off with in sort of the Olympic stream, but uh, but was in my late twenties, and so the Olympics were kind of uh, like I felt like I was quote unquote too old for the Olympics, and. Um, didn't uh, and I got burnt out quite quickly because I'm a very much like a go 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 type of person. So I just filled my days with training and everything. I like working a full time job and trying to have a relationship, and it just all kind of crashed and burned. And that's when I so that's when I quit everything and uh, um, needed to take a break and went back to school to do another degree. Wow. Some people take a vacation. You do another degree. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And then I came straight out of that degree. And my um, coach at the time was like, you know, I had been bike racing during my degree to pare it down to just one sport versus training for three sports. And, uh, and he was like, you know, I think you should try this long distance triathlon stuff. And so I did my first um, half Ironman and uh, and won it by 24 minutes and posted a time that would have put me like in the top 10 of the world championships that year and so I thought you know what I'm 32 <laughs> uh, I should really like see what I can do with this career as an athlete and yeah that was 10 years ago. So you're did sponsors come along easily or did you have to fight for them? Um, <clears throat> it really. Uh, it definitely took a few years. I, I sort of worked through, like, I think I was actually quite lucky in that um, in the first, 
several years of my career, I had a local bike shop that supported me quite well. So like gave me a bike to ride and wheels and, you know, discounts on equipment. And then when I paired with Wadi Inc, um, that brought in a whole other sort of network of sponsors and I've just built from there. And so I feel like, um, and I, uh, I live really simply like the, the amount of money that I need to survive as long as my equipment is covered. Um, yeah, I was, I felt pretty lucky and that, uh, that things came like relatively easily. I never felt like it's like if I needed something, then I have a good network to, to reach out to. So you're 42 now then, is that correct? Correct. Yeah. And you're still racing, going after the elite level. I love that. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. absolutely. I mean, this, yeah, Ironman New Zealand in, uh, in March, I just did my first, my fastest Ironman of my life, of my career, Run, ran the fastest marathon of my career. Um, I, as far as I'm concerned, I'm still getting faster. Yeah. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep believing that until uh, I see otherwise. Yeah, well, I like it because I think a lot of times, um, especially women that come into the sport a little bit later, think that, oh, well, I'm too old to, like, go for, like, big goals or something, you know, like, or to push myself, um, or I, you know, I don't have the time in my life. And I know that you race as a professional athlete, so that's your job to train, but I think, like, recalibrating, the more we see people that are racing hard into their 40s. And then we even talked to Olivia uh, Dillon last week that's like 48. She's And mm-hmm. she almost won Dirty Kanza last year. She was yeah. leading to the last 20 miles. Is that what she said, Christy? Yeah. She's, yeah. So, you know, I just think it's really cool to see um, people pushing themselves <laughs> as their bodies start yeah. to change. <laughs> Yeah, and that's what I really hope to to inspire is to to help folks recognize, um, especially female bodied athletes, that like you have this ability in you, like like you're, you know, I had sort, of, I had this like, um, <clears throat> I had a real challenge when I turned forty of of just like basically starting to wait, you know, sitting here waiting for my performance to start to decline for, um, you know, sponsors to start to drop me and that sort of thing, just because of my age and that, because that's what I've, you know, you kind of make these assumptions because that's what everything is telling you is that once you hit 40, then you're, you start to decline. And, um, it's taken all my strengths to, to go beyond that and recognize, and, and thankfully I have these results that are showing me very clearly that I'm not getting slower, um, that I'm just getting stronger, and and I really actually credit coming into sport at a later age because my body's not so as run down, especially starting Ironman and long, these long-distance races later in my career. I have a lot more life left in me to continue continue racing I haven't like broken my body down and and my mind down in such a way um and that there's still that room for improvement and I really hope that I can uh, inspire other 40 somethings that like and and contribute to like the growing number of female-bodied athletes who are doing incredible things into their late 40s 
um, and even 50s winning races. Um, it's just incredible. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Especially, you know, being the 50 sign. <laughs> but Christy did really well at Dirty Kanza the first time. She actually got to do it because you yeah. you didn't get to do it until a few years ago, correct? Because you were always running the race. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I did really well um, and felt like, you know, I was 49 and 10th female. Felt like I had more left in me, but um, my big focus was honestly to finish. So there was that you know, hesitation of going out just and you know, I didn't want to burn every match and then not be able to finish because it was such an, it was such a, a luxury and honor to be able to race it and have the team pick up the slack for me that I wanted to make sure I at least finished it. And then of course I finished it and I was like, shit. <laughs> so when Rach does it next year, you can just, uh, hop onto their wheel. I'll just fill Rach in on all of my tips and tricks. <laughs> I I am going to be in your inbox. <laughs> very no much problem. Yeah, I could so, totally see a big Wadi Wadi Ink uh, group there. Um, oh well, Sarah Max is with Wadi Ink now, and Yuri Hoswald. Yeah. They're both really good friends of mine, and um, yeah. That's the the stuff is so cool. How did you get the the nickname Purple Tiger? <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, it's so the tiger comes from when I was a teenager. Actually, when I was eighteen, I uh, had my hair. It was like shaved on the sides. I had this tiny little mohawk, and it was dyed in like tiger prints. Um, and I was living in Berlin at the time, and uh, and I walked by this little kid and his mother, um, and he it said, "Cook, mum, muti eine Tigatante," which in English means like, "Look, mum, a tiger lady," but it's it literally translated as "it's tiger ants," like tiger auntie, because little kids like in German, that's like the nice way to talk talk about a strange a stranger is to call them either auntie or uncle. And so my girlfriend at the time thought this was hilarious that I was this little kid had called me Tiga Tanta. And so the tiger sort of stuck with me. Um, and I've grown up with cats. I love cats. I have a, like a massive soft spot for cats. In my next life, I hope that I am some sort of cat. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I've always wanted to have a tail. <clears throat> and, um, uh, and then when I... The, you know, the purple part, it's, it's like a, it's a little bit of a mystery to me. I think what happened is once I became, once I became a, a professional triathlete, I had, I had kind of, I was really creative with like my dress and my hair and my clothing um, through my 20s. And then I went through this period of like really conforming in this um, uh, and like, and sort of tempering that creativity in myself. And I think when I had this free reign to just like create myself again and, and express myself fully, um, I cut my hair back in a mohawk um, and I dyed it purple. And, uh, and then when Wadi, um, there was already, and so I think that's where the purple tiger came from is that it, 
sort of started in that realm and purple is my favorite color. And then of course, when Lottie uh, and I uh, started working together, he's like, what, you know, what do you want your first kit to be? And I'm like purple tiger print, of course. And so it's just come from there. That's awesome. Um, and the, in the U S that would be called LSU. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, we're, I'm in the South, so, um, and I lived in Louisiana for a while, and I saw a lot of the purple and the tigers for LSU. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, um, I did want to uh, talk to you about one specific topic. So, I, there is an article in Triathlete Magazine that says, Rach McBride didn't intend to become a non-binary gender advocate for triathlon. Um, and so I would love for you to tell us a little bit about how that happened, what that means to you, kind of your story around that, and even a little what's going on in triathlon and maybe some things we should look out in gravel. Is it? Yeah. I have so many, like, that was just like 12 questions yeah. for you. So just <laughs> I'm gonna get like, my water oh and God. sit back and listen. How, yeah. How much time do we have here? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, um, hopefully the short story of sort of my background, I, um, ever since I was, I can remember, I have felt sort of different gender wise, I've never really fit in, in terms of like, being a girl or a woman. Um, when I was a kid, I was, I was super androgynous, I was often asked if I was a boy or a girl, and even into adulthood, I'm still asked if I'm a boy or a girl or, um, and and it never really, it's it's never really like sat with me to sat sat right with me to say that I'm a girl, but it also doesn't fit for me to say that I'm a boy. And so, when I was a young adult, um, and discovered that there was a world outside of the binary, um, I I quickly identified as genderqueer. Um, and, but didn't really like in, in a lot of ways, didn't really commit to that understanding and didn't really recognize that like I could actually identify as something other than man or woman. Um, it didn't feel like an option. And I think as, as sort of the world has become a more inclusive and open place. And I did a lot of soul searching, especially in the past couple of years, and also have had a lot of support within my own personal life. Um, and also within the community, any of the, um, you know, I'm, uh, if whenever I would post something that was about sort of that, like identifying myself as sort of crossing that, that the, crossing the binary. Um, I had so much support and so many positive comments from people. Um, and I saw other folks in like the trans athlete world being advocates and saw the, the, the positive impact that that was having. And through this soul searching, I really recognized that I wasn't doing myself. I was, I was doing myself a disservice by still identifying with she, her pronouns, which never, felt right to me and that I have by being more out and open um, and more committed within myself to my identity that I am more fulfilled and more so and like the most self-expressed that I can be and the most comfortable within 
my body that I can be and um, that I have this incredible platform. Like I know that there are other people out there like me. I know that there are other non-binary athletes out there and I recognize um, the impact that like, what if when I was a kid or even in my twenties or even in my, in my thirties, when I became a professional athlete, what if there was somebody out there like me who was out and open and was showing that you could do this? It was sort of paving the way um, that you could identify as non-binary and still compete. Um, and, uh, and so that's a huge inspiration for me that I know that there are a lot of folks out there who, um, who are like me, who don't have a voice, um, but who could have a voice and could, who could have that confidence. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's a huge inspiration for me to continue to do this work and to continue to just be really open, um, and out and, uh, and it makes me a happier person. Like it's been a really incredible experience to, to have the community support, um, and also to be able to, um, to see the allies coming out as well, because with our triathlete magazine article and, uh, and some other articles that have come out, um, on social media, there have been a lot of negative comments and, um, there have been incredible allies who have stepped up to help educate people. Um, I'm, and I'm, um, you know, fully willing to address any personal messages that I get as well to help, um, talk to people in a very compassionate and kind way about, what this all means and, um, and help folks understand. Um, yeah. What the... I think, you know, you talking through that, it's like, obviously, uh, what a gift that you end up giving to people out there, um, that identify in a similar manner that you do. Um, it's gotta be, I just, I think about that kid that just didn't know that it's okay, you yeah. know, and how impactful that's got to be, um, to the point where you're, you, you know, you're probably saving lives and you don't even know that you're doing that, um, which is, pre is pretty powerful when you think about it that way. Um, and you, I, it, it's awesome too, to see that your sponsors have obviously stood by your side and, and respected the platform and, and what you're saying and, and been accepting of all of that, um, how, with all of that, how do you deal with those negative comments that come at you? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I, I'm thankful that, like, I haven't had a whole lot of, like, personal negative stuff. Um, I have had some guidance from um, so other LGBTQ athletes of, like, who are out um, out in the world and guidance in terms of like, what kind of energy do I put into addressing some of these negative comments that I see on these articles? Um, and a lot of folks are like, you know what, let your allies deal. Um, of, and, and truly, the, the positives have outweighed the negatives. Um, and the comments have, um, the comments that I read, I was really surprised the first time I read through all the negative comments because I wasn't, I didn't feel personally attacked. I didn't feel like personally 
um, affected by them for one, because their comments um, that I have seen over and over again, like it's nothing new. It's, it's nothing that I haven't heard before. Um, and a lot of it is stemmed from um, just like confusion and, and um, um, just like it, to me, it's like a bit of a mis like a misunderstanding almost. Um, and that there are comments that are very much like very out there in the, uh, in terms of comments of trans athletes and that sort of thing. Um, and so, yeah, it's just been, a uh, it's a learning experience for me right now in terms of like how, when and how to address that. Um, because of course I, I would love to sit down and I find that social media is really challenging as well mm-hmm. because it can be really anonymous at, or people will say things that they wouldn't actually say to your face. And, um, and I would love to sit down and have a face to face conversation with all of these folks. Um, and I'm really inspired by, um, certain people on social media who, are have this continued like patience and compassion um, to be in conversations with people who are saying really nasty things to them um, and have some incredible examples of like how once if you really if you really sit down and have those one-on-one conversations with people and and show them compassion and kindness and provide a little bit of context and education just how much you can change their thoughts and opinions and understanding. Um, and so I just see it, them coming from a lot of ignorance that, um, that I think, uh, there's, there's space to learn and to educate and hopefully just by being more vocal about things and having the opportunity to explain, um, uh, and hopefully more folks come out of the, the woodwork, um, who are also non-binary identifying um, that it will become more accepted and more positive and people will have a better understanding of what what actually it means. I think that's so powerful because I don't think anybody's mind has ever been changed on social media, right? (laughs) Like from the fights on social media, but what does change people's minds is their story of like feeling like hearing your story of like, I felt um, like I didn't fit or I didn't belong. And like, we've all felt that, but to feel like you just don't even belong in your butt, like there's not a place for you that that's, that really brings a lot of compassion to my heart, you know? And so I think like when people start to listen and just hear each other's stories, it's so powerful. And, you know, I think it's very, I love that you've been out there and, and I've seen as you've shared, it's always a very compassionate way you share your story so I've appreciated that about you very much that's, that's, that's really wonderful feedback I yeah I'm I mean this is what I hope is that the more that I have them the more that I'm able to talk um, and share my experiences and um, what this all means to me and and the and what it means to be a non-binary person that I hope it will provide that education. So I feel like this is a conversation that's really, it's just in the, the infancy, infancy. Um, 
that there's a lot more to go. And I, I feel like there's a lot more of, I am very happy to share like more of my story and more of the details of like, of my experiences. And hopefully as time goes on, um, uh, yeah, there'll just be more folks who will sort of listen in that, in that compassionate lens as well. Yeah. Why do you like, you know, obviously events, Ironman events, gravel events, any, any event basically is very binary. So you show up, you identify as a male or female. What do you wish would happen at starting lines? Like what would, what would make everyone feel like they had a place in your opinion? I know you don't represent every person, (laughs) but you do have some degrees. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I feel like the, like at races it's really to me the like gendered language where there doesn't need to be gendered language um i've talked about like registration forms how those can be different um and just the like even just recognizing if someone is personally talking about me that my pronouns are recognized um you know, and in terms of the language, just a group of people and assuming that they all identify as like girls or guys or ladies, changes in registration forms that I've talked, I think that it's really just decreasing the use of, of identification and of, of like gender. So not looking at a group of, you know, even at stunts, it's like, so I race in a female category, but I don't identify as female. And so when a race announcer says, hey, ladies, or something like that, or let's, let's cheer these girls on, um, I feel like I sit there. I feel like an imposter. I feel like I'm not supposed to be there. That there are probably a lot of other folk in that, area uh, would would like make feel the same way and that's totally not necessary like it's totally easy to folks or people unfortunately it was breaking up a little bit again but i got a lot of it uh but uh, uh yeah. <laughs> i was uh, worried about that the looks on your face and they're like oh But I think, like, the gist of what you were saying is just, like, it can feel, you can feel left out when people are giving that idea of, like, um, just referring to ladies or feeling like you don't have a place, that you don't belong there. Um, well, you know, from an event promoter's perspective, it's interesting because it's a simple, it's a simple change. Um, you know, using a non-identifying yeah. word, like folks, like you said, or you know, yo racers or whatever. Y'all, y'all. We can go super yeah, soft. But um, I know it's, it, and it is, it's one of those things. I think one of the things that I'm enjoying about this conversation with you, Rach, is that you can see how um, compassionate you really are. And it's obviously something in in me that's ingrained to use she, he, Um and it's not ill-intentional that, you know, I'm not ever doing it with Ill, any ill intent when I'm saying it. It's just, it's historic. So being raised to be more aware and raising that awareness and then, and then having the conversations where with someone that is 
compassionate about it and and showing the other way it makes it it makes it a lot easier to do it um so i'll make sure we try to make sure we're not so gender focused it's still weird for me to state my pronouns but i'm still learning to have these conversations um and i as now as someone who like because i am so conscious of this i am now recognizing where i make my own assumptions and um and so it's really been an eye-opening experience, and it, it is a challenge. It's absolutely a challenge um, because we have been raised like 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 this is so ingrained in us. What is the first thing when a child is born that somebody asks? Is it a boy or a girl? And um, and if if a person can't categorize their child, it's it's actually very like fundamentally. Um, traumatizing because we can't put them in a box and we're as humans we are just that's how we create community and connection and identify people is by putting them in a box um, and so it's it's very counterintuitive for our own brains and our own just as like a human species to to um, not use gender as that or not use sex as that like first initial understanding of a person um, and to be more curious about that and, and not make those assumptions. So it is absolutely, it's challenging. Yes. And the more that you, it is just like this brain shift um, of, of, and it takes, it's like a step wise process, right? Right now, um, like a lot of folks are just in that place of, of starting to recognize the, how they use gendered language and, then hopefully there'll be more of a progression. Yeah. Actually, I have a friend that I think is probably has moved more toward the, the um, identifying non-binary as they have, um, you know, kind of evolved in their sexuality. And I just remember early on we were having a conversation and I was just learning a lot. And um, my friend Finn was just like, it's so, like, it's, it's okay for you to ask me questions, <laughs> you know, like I know you love me. And so it's so, like, I'm okay with engaging in that conversation with you. And I think sometimes we get like really nervous and we're like, I don't know what to say. And then it makes everything mm. awkward. <laughs> and, um, and so just being okay, you know, like yeah. having conversations out of love and concern and like, I want to be a better person. Exactly. And I think that that's a huge part of it. Like, like I have no problem having conversations about this if I am speak, especially if I'm speaking with someone who I know is compassionate, is just trying to learn more. Um, you know, I have no problem connect correcting people on pronouns if I know that they are trying, um, that they are making an effort to to use my correct pronouns. Um, and so it, 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 I've run into the same thing of of just like wanting to have conversations and wanting to ask people, um, you know, to learn more about who they are and you, you worry about saying the wrong thing or saying something offensive. Um, and I think people know when it's coming from the right place, like if it's coming from a, a place of compassion and love. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting times too, because I think we've become such a divisive society that you I know I have a, a shield up that I didn't used to have. Yeah. Um, and trying hard to like get to the other side of that. Um, 
I'm hoping November helps, but um, just really trying to find an openness in myself to feel like those, you can have those hard conversations and you're not going to get attacked. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, this is one of the challenging things with social media is that it is creating division in a lot of ways and it is um, creating these smaller groups and we're not necessarily exposed to ideas that are outside of our own um, just merely because of the the algorithms that are happening yep. on, on social media. Um, and so it can be, of course, it's wonderful to to connect with a larger community um, but there are absolutely challenges that come along with that and it's changing how we are as a society changing how we um, interact with other people um, and uh, yeah it's definitely there's there's going to be some some big learning curves I think in in the future in terms of managing all of that yeah. we all need to have a little bit more and by a little a lot more compassion for each other I just think people are doing the best they can a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, this has been pretty, really good, but pretty serious. But So I want to wrap up um, finding out about this fabulous gravel camp that you just took yourself on up in oh, BC. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why I wasn't invited. Because we can't go to Canada. We cannot cross the border, literally. Oh, I know. I know. This is the thing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is one of the beautiful things about COVID is that because I'm not in the middle of this Ironman build, I have the ability to go and do these incredible adventures. Um, And it was absolutely a very much a fitness build. Um, And uh, um, you're blocking the wine. I. Yeah, we had ten days in the uh, in the Rockies. And basically, I was out there with my husband, Shane, who's also my bike coach, and we just, you know, I think he just looked on Google Maps for roads that looked like fun and had some ideas already from some of the trips that he'd done out there beforehand. And um, it was incredible. I mean, we basically were riding on roads we'd never been on before, exploring. We didn't do anything like super, well, we had one day that was super epic. But it was not like none of every day we were riding an average of about four hours. So it wasn't anything crazy or huge. But I mean, what an incredible province that I live in. And we 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 ducked into Alberta as well um, to do a couple of rides in the in the, uh, in the Rockies. And yeah, just. Um, you know, there's still it's still a little early, so there was definitely still some snow. Our epic day that we did was a uh, it turned into a six and a half hour day, um, and about two hours of that was hiking through snow, uh, sometimes up to my wow. thigh, um, a couple <laughs> kilometers on a trail that nobody had gone on all winter. Um, it was obviously had not been traveled, and so. Uh, it was a little bit more than we had anticipated. However, at the summit, we were at 2,200 meters, which was 7,200 feet, and it was 360-degree, like, snow-capped mountains that you feel like you could touch. It was incredible. Um, and just having, yeah, it, that's the most incredible thing about riding a gravel bike is 
being able to go to these places that not a lot of people have been um, to explore uh, and see these sites and to be just away from from civilization. Uh, and yeah, it's it's like it's so wonderful. I'm so happy on my gravel bike. Oh, I I can identify with that. And you're gonna show up at yeah. Kanza and like kick some major ass when you make that move over. I mean, this is gonna be. I will tell you that's what that's what Catherine told me. She goes, if Rach comes to Kanza, they will win it. Did I do that right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, Rach and Heather, because Heather's a super fast rider too, a super strong cyclist. Oh yeah, I mean, if HJ are going head, HJ and I are going head to head, that is going to be a tough competition because she is a beast. Yeah, um, yeah, and uh, you know, Kansa, I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage in Kansa because it's so flat. There's not a whole lot of elevation. However, um, it's it's just like one of the most epic things out there. I have a friend who ended up in the hospital after completing Kansa. <laughs> I'm like, uh-huh. awesome. I'm in. I'm so in. <laughs> it was referred to death by a thousand paper cuts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. thank you so much for your time today and just for having um, honest conversations with us and um, being patient with all the internet issues that we're having today. Uh, sorry, Taylor, about the editing. And if people want to follow you and see pictures of this epic gravel camp and other uh, things like your amazing uh, kits and stuff, where can they find you? Um, yeah, mostly on Instagram, at uh, Rachel McBee. Um, and then on Facebook, uh, I've got a page as well. If you just search my name, Rachel McBride, then I'll show up. Yeah, and we'll link that article in Triathlete Magazine if people are interested in reading it. Awesome, yeah. Oh, and you can also find stuff on my website, which is mm, periodically updated, (laughs) rachelmcbride.com. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Rachel. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, really awesome to chat with you, and uh, I, yes, I will see you at Kansas. The Girls Gone Gravel podcast is a production of Live Feisty Media. Subscribe, like, and comment on your listening platform. Our producer is Taylor Mahan Rudolph. You can follow us on all of the socials at Girls Gone Gravel or visit our website at girlsgonegravel.com. <laughs>